Alrighty, so at the outset of the Bible, we see God at work uh, throughout Genesis 1, and then in Genesis 2, after he creates man, the first thing that he does for man is to give man meaningful work. And now in our passage in Genesis 2, we come for the first time today to human work. We saw God working all through Genesis 1, and now we come to human work. Now, work is such a big part of our lives that we we desperately need to have God's perspective on it because, I mean, it's just one of the biggest parts of our lives. And when I talk about work this morning, I'm not talking simply about paid employment or paid jobs. I'm talking about any and all work, whether or not that's housework, work in the home, school work, yard work, volunteer work, any work, because God has made you in his image, he who works, and he's made us in his image to work. That's part of our design. So if you'd stand with me, I'm going to read from chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 4, and I'm going to read a bit. Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Skipping down to verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's holy word, church. Please be seated. A question that raises itself right away when you hit this passage is, well, okay, we had had an account of creation in Genesis 1, and this one seems a bit different. Do we have two different uh, versions of creation? And the answer is no. We've got two perspectives, two different angles looking at the same event of creation. In Genesis 1, we've got the wide-angle view. We've got the uh, creation of the heavens and the earth, the creation of the universe. And then in Genesis 2, it's like Google Earth narrowing in on a certain section of land. And we narrow in on not only one planet, but one spot in the planet, the Garden of Eden, and the creation of man. This is the crown of creation, and when we come to that, God is going to, again, give us the detailed version of what happened on the sixth day. It's interesting and fitting uh, with the names of God that in Genesis 1, it is the basic title for God, Elohim. That's not a personal name for God. That just means God. And the word God appears in almost every line, 35 times in the first 35 verses of the Bible. But in Genesis 2-4... When we shift gears to focus on man, there is a different name of God that's used, the one that's more personal, the one that relates to man. So it fits. 
Beginning in verse 2-4, if you look at your Bibles, it says, In that day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And you know in the English Bibles, when you get the word Lord in all caps, that refers to his personal name, Yahweh. Now, the, the, name, the name Elohim uh, particularly emphasizes God's greatness and vastness and his sovereignty and his infinity. And Yahweh carries some of those, but it's also a personal name. That's the, why he relates to us as his people, as his beloved people. And so it's fitting in Genesis 2, when, it, when the focus is going to be on the creation of man, that we have God now all through that, that passage as the Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim. And so here we are zooming in to focus on the crown of creation. Verse 5 begins the details. When it says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was, was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, this is kind of the state when God creates man. It would be equivalent to Genesis 1-2. If you were with us there, I think the most likely explanation is that there's this dark, watery, formless planet that's resulting from a pre-Genesis creation. When God in the uh, pre-Genesis 1 created the angelic world, there was judgment, there was rebellion, there was judgment, and it left this state of chaos, pre-creation. And, and, and this verse is uh, summarizing that state. Now, after that summary statement in Genesis 1, then we begin the details of the six days of creation, but not in Genesis 2, because uh, the passage is only concerned about man, so we go straight to, chapter, to, to the day six in chapter two, the creation of man and woman. And we get details that we did not get in chapter one. All righty. Verse eight, verse seven. Then the Lord God, again, that name Yahweh Elohim, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now, if we just read right through Genesis 1 and came right through Genesis 2, that would sound very different than what we read in Genesis 1. I mean, different, different perspective. Because in Genesis 1, we had God creating by his mere word, by just fiat, just let there be light and there is light. But this is slowing down and giving detail as God comes to the crown of the creation, humans who alone are in his image. And there we don't read about God creating with his mouth, but with his hand. And we read in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust. That word formed would be used in the Old Testament of a sculptor fashioning a clay pot. So what's the Bible telling us? Not just a vast and remote creation, but, but, but God is a skilled artist, a, a, a creative sculptor when it comes to creating man and woman. We'll see this even more when we get to the creation of woman. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So, so not just with his word, but he reaches and grabs the dust from the ground to form the man. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And, of course, this is figurative language. God doesn't have a body. And uh, he got breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, this is so different than Genesis 1, which is vast and, and remote and just at his word. But here, God is not only taking his hand, but he's breathing into his nostrils. That's so personal. I mean, the infinite, sovereign, holy God is, is, is so personal here. It's almost like a face-to-face -face kiss. You can get a little glimmer of, I, I assume that Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel 
And that centerpiece of that painting had that, uh, perhaps had this verse in mind. You know, it has it not breathing, but the, the fingers reaching out, personal. And this is God's touch for you. I was able to see a couple of very small babies on the way in, very newborn babies, and pray over them, just the careful work of creation that God does. And then God breathes the breath of life. Now, the breath of life foreshadows an event later when, when God the Son comes to this planet, lives his life, he dies on a cross, his resurrection, and do you remember before he leaves again finally that John 20, says that he gathers his disciples and he breathes into them the gift of the Holy Spirit. By the way, um, ultimately the Old Testament is about Jesus. If you want to understand the Old Testament, look for Jesus. Now, it's not always so direct as here, but this is a faint foreshadowing of another day when God would step into the universe, I mean, step into the planet, and he breathed the Holy Spirit into his disciples. Of course, we're part of that legacy. It's part of the church. And when we come to Christ, uh, God breathes into us the Spirit of God, and we live by the Spirit and not by our, our own wits and power. So, the fact that we've got the breath of life in us is God's breath in us. That's not just physical life. That's spiritual life. That means you and I, unlike the animal creation, we, we, as image bearers, we have the capacity to relate to God, to connect to God, to know God. In fact, that is our deepest longing, to, to come back to our Creator and to connect with Him. And we all have that. All righty. In verse 8, God places this new man. Don't have the woman yet, but He places the man into His environment in the Garden of Eden. It's described in verse 8, and the Lord God planted a, a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to that sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So God creates man and places him in an ideal environment. You know, it must have been incredible. Just you know, a, like maybe a South Sea island, you think about just, man, it's so nice. And, uh, you know, no problems. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. No disease, no flooding, no cancer, no pain, not even mosquitoes. And it was just so, it's a paradise environment. I love the way one writer puts it. He says, the Lord God's provision is a model of parental care. The fledgling is sheltered but not smothered. On all sides, discoveries and encounters await him to draw out of him powers of discernment and choice. And there is simple nourishment for his aesthetic, physical, and spiritual appetites. Further, there is man's work before him for body and mind. And so right at the outset, we see God is parent also. He's not just creator. He's the parent. He's the perfect parent. And, you know, we just pause here. Um, you know, of all the principles on parenting we could talk about, I think the most basic one is this. As God parents us, so we parent our kids. Just watch God, his perspectives, his attitudes, his actions, the way God parents us is the way we ought to parent our kids. Now, there's a lot of implications to that, but one that I just want to point out is this. None of us had perfect human parents, and your kids, if you've got kids, they don't have perfect human parents. Nobody here has got perfect human parents. And some of us are stuck there. 
and we live in the woundedness and pain and hurt of having human flawed parents. Don't do that. Why waste your life? You may not have had a perfect parent on, on, on this earth, but in heaven, every single one of us has a perfect parent, and he's God the Father. And that's the main fact. Don't live in the woundedness of human flawed parents when you could live in the freedom and glory and the love of a perfect heavenly father. So let me just remind you, all of us have that. Okay, he's the perfect father creating this, uh, this environment for, his, for his, this, this new man. All righty, the next few verses that I did not read give us the geography of Eden. There we see there are four rivers. Two of them are named, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Two of them, uh, are, are all four are named, but of two of them we don't know where they are or don't know exactly what they represent. Uh, we don't know exactly where Eden is. We know it's in the Middle East because the Tigris and Euphrates are in that area, so we know it's somewhere in that region, but we don't know exactly where. But isn't it interesting right at the start that God gives us these geographical details, these details about him. These are real people. This is a real place. This is not allegory. Uh, this is a specific geographical and historical setting. Now, with all that background, we come to the first key passage on work in all the Bible. And because work is so big for us, we've got to pause. Last week when I came to the Sabbath, uh, we had to pause because the Sabbath is just a huge concept, not so much the weekly day of rest, but the fact that ultimately we have true Sabbath rest in Jesus. And He alone gives us our rest from that work beneath the work, that is that work of trying to earn God's favor and justify ourselves, we can go and rest because Jesus on the cross did the work for us of earning our salvation. And so last week we came to Sabbath, we looked a little bit at the passage and then took a, took a biblical overview. We're going to do the same thing with work. But first of all, in this passage itself, in Genesis 2.15, there are some implications about work for you and me. Again, I, when I talk about work, not paid jobs, those jobs plus any and every kind of work, yard work, housework, homework, school work, uh, volunteer work, any kind of work. All righty. What are some implications just by the fact that God creates man and the first thing he does is put him in the Garden of Eden and gives him work? Well, one would be that work is a good thing. It's inherently a good thing. This is before the fall. This is before sin. This is part of God's good creation that had the summaries at the end of chapter 1 that, that all that God created was very good. And now we're going back to get a detailed part of day six. That work is part of very good. Work is not a necessary evil. It is a part of, it is a good thing in God's creation, part of his good creation. Secondly, not only is it good in itself, you are designed to work. That is, okay, you're created in the image of God. You share basic things with your creator. God is a worker. God, at the outset of creation, is so emphatic. He's working. You're created to work. You're designed to work. It's not only a good thing, you're designed to work. It is part of your humanness. I would say this, you're not completely alive without work. Some of you worked a hard career, and you retired, and, and that's great. That's a good thing. Uh, but if you don't have some kind of work in your life, you're feeling a restlessness of soul. I, I hear from, from a bunch of you. A number of you say, you know, I just, I, I'm looking for what God has for me next. That's what you're experiencing, that you're designed for work. 
And at this stage of the game, that's probably going to be volunteer work to advance the kingdom of God. Some of you are are waiting until you see it written in the sky. And and don't do that. Um, Certainly, you need to pray and seek the Lord, get advice. But at some point, do something. Um, I mean, there's scads of opportunities and enormous need. Let us help you. Let us help you. Connect card, information center, you're designed for work. Okay. Thirdly, your work matters to God. It's not, it's not just mattering to you, it matters to God. I mean, think about it. God clearly cares about what Adam is doing here. He's to, to oversee everything in the garden. We're going to see later some naming and things like that. Uh, he cares about Adam's work. He cares about your work. I mean, if Jesus in the New Testament says that God has numbered the hairs on our head, if he cares about the hairs on my disappearing hair, um, he cares about our work, doesn't he? God cares. Your, your work matters to God. And we're going to see it matters more than we realize. A fourth truth doesn't come out of Genesis 1 and 2. The first three do. But in Genesis 3, we're going to see we do have the fall. And after the fall, there's still work like there was before. But now there are thorns and thistles with that work. Uh, and, and here's the fourth one. Expect frustrations with your work. Expect there to be thorns and thistles. Yeah, we may not be farmers or gardeners. But there are thorns and thistles. Equipment breaks down. There's conflict with people. We have health issues, health problems. There's disappointments. We're let down. Uh, There's just problems. We live in a fallen world, and there are thorns and thistles. So don't expect it to be perfect. There are opportunities, though, to depend upon God to rescue us. So here are four simple theological implications. Kind of serve as a foundation. We're going to get much more practical. But here's a foundation. These four things that... Work is a good thing. You are designed for work. Your work matters to God and expect frustration in your work. Now, at this point, I want to go beyond Genesis 1 and 2 because for the first time the Bible raises this very important subject of work and look at a biblical overview of the basic perspectives that that should mark you and I as Christ followers with our work. Now, since God has called us to live distinctive lives in every part of life, what would that mean for a Christ follower with work? Remember, at the job or at the home or wherever. What would that mean? Well, here are some of the things that it means. First of all, it means honesty. The Bible has such enormous emphasis on being truth-tellers, on being people of honesty, integrity, uh, people of character. I mean, isn't this legendary that uh, uh, someone says that, man, that person over there claims to be a Christian, and wow, if that's a Christian, I don't want anything in it. I mean, isn't that one of the biggest stumbling blocks for the non-Christian world today, to see uh, someone professing Christ and yet not honest and not, doesn't have character, doesn't have integrity? Um, and so, right at the outset, uh, a, a Christ follower, um, pleasing to God and work, certainly there would be honesty and integrity. So that would be first. That's the place to start. Secondly, there'd be witness, because all of us know that, I mean, we're living our life for a few splinters of time here on earth and planet and, and for all eternity in, in heaven. And that, that's what really matters most is eternity. And so we want to be a witness for Christ. We, we, we have been so overwhelmed by the grace and the love of God that, that this is just the most important thing. Now, we may not be um, Billy Graham evangelist types, but we want to be a witness by our life and by our words, by our prayers and by our behavior. We want to be a witness for Jesus Christ. We just sort of instinctively know that. You know, we, we talk about uh, reaching our neighbors, and we certainly want to do that. 
But if you have a job in the marketplace, you spend far more time with your folks at work than you do with your neighbors probably. And I, I could only assume that in our top five cards that we put up on that basket, and we're praying for five people that may not yet know Christ, I assume that there's a lot of folks there that come from your work and not your neighborhood. You know, probably your neighborhood too. But we, we want to pray for people. We, we want to at times pray with people at work, whether or not they're Christians. We, we want to serve them. We want to love them. We want to listen to them. And as God gives opportunity, we want to speak up for Christ. We don't want to hide our, our Christian faith. We want to be honest, which was back to principle one. So there's honesty. There's witness. Third thing is that is just generosity. Uh, you hear a lot of believers talking about, you know, I, I want to give back to the kingdom. You know, again, this is the image of God in you. God is the most generous person in the universe. For God so loved the world that he gave. God is a giver. He's generous. You're made in God's image, and do you know that, that you are most alive when you're generous? Uh, there's just something about us. We all want to be generous in all kinds of ways, big and little, including giving to the kingdom of God. So that's part of why we work. We want to give to advance the kingdom of God around the, around the planet. And so certainly generosity. John Wesley um, said to his followers, he said, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Just part of the image of God. Now think about these first three. Honesty, witness, generosity. They're common principles that we talk about for Christian work. And, and, and we ought to just kind of be pausing almost with every one of them and just thinking, Lord God, how am I doing with this one? And I would encourage you to do that. How am I doing with honesty, integrity? Or how am I doing with witness? Do I have a mindset that, that uh, eternity is, is here? How am I doing with generosity? Just sort of evaluating ourselves. Now, oftentimes, the Christian perspective on work stops there. But there are several other very important principles. And so I want to raise a few other ones. The fourth one I want to raise is excellence. You honor God when you do your work well. When you're at your company and you're doing engineering problems, if you're the best engineer that you can be, that honors God. If you're in the elementary school and you're teaching third graders and you're the best teacher you can be, that honors God inherently. When you're doing work at the house, volunteer work, any kind of work, yard work, uh, excellence honors God. A passage in Colossians 3.23 is a very important passage about work. And it says this. It says, whatever you do, work heartily. It's for the Lord and not for men. Work heartily. Do your best. You know, put, your, put, put everything you got into it. Excellence honors God. Some of you know the name Dorothy Sayers. She was a contemporary and a colleague of both C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, brilliant woman. She once said this about work. She said, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his faith makes upon him is that he should make good tables. No crooked table legs or ill-fitted drawers came out of that carpenter's shop in Nazareth. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. 
The church has forgotten that the secular vocation is sacred. That work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. Dorothy Sayers says that the first duty for us as Christians is not actually honesty, witness, generosity, but do good work that honors God, that reflects on God. Fourth or fifth, the next principle for a Christian, Christ follower at work is be very clear on your real boss. Because your boss is not the guy who's evaluating you or the woman who's giving you your review. The CEO of the company is not who you work for. You do not work for that company, not ultimately. God is your boss. God is your boss. Colossians 3.23 again. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Very explicit here. Uh, Yes, I've got a human boss that I'm accountable to, but that's not my real boss. God is my boss. That means I don't work harder when somebody's watching me because God is always watching me. He's always there. So that could change so much of your perspective. Let me just ask you, do you keep that mentality before you? Uh, I'm not really trying to please that person. I'm trying to please God in all your work. Okay, number six, got two more. And the sixth one is love. Because the second commandment says love your, love your neighbors yourself. Now think about this with me. God is saying that besides the command to love God, there is nothing more important in life than to love your neighbor. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 says, I don't care what else you've got in your life. You could give all you have to uh, the poor. You can give your body to be burned. You can have faith to move mountains. I don't care what else you've got. If you don't have love, you don't have anything. Now think about this at work. All of us just about, our work basically involves people. Man, if you operate a lighthouse, you know, it may not involve people. But for just about all of us, I mean, that, that's our world of work. We got colleagues, we got customers, we got clients, we got patients, you know, we got a boss, a human boss. We, we, we work with people. And this most important duty trumps the other duties when it comes to work. We got to love people. So, what does that mean? That means, uh, well, ought to be kindness in my voice, shouldn't there be? And, and in my actions, I should treat people fairly. I, I shouldn't be gossiping about my fellow workers. I mean, that, that's hard to reconcile with love. Uh, loyalty, um, treating people right, being fair with people. I mean, all of those things, uh, that's part of love. And, and if you're a Christ follower and you've got some good things, I mean, maybe you're making a ton of money and giving tons of it to the kingdom and, man, you're witnessing for Christ left and right, but there's no love in your heart, you don't have anything. So this really ought to define our love. Lead with love. Lead with love when it comes to work. Love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, that's forgiveness too. Forgiving that worker who hurt you. All righty, seventh and finally, worship. For the Christ follower, work is worship if you work for God. And that's what the Bible says for us. That passage we've been focusing on, Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, work heartily as 
for the Lord and not for men. Who are you working for? You're working for the Lord. Why are you doing this? Because you're working for the Lord. In fact, if I could say, if there's one phrase to emblazon over your desk or over your computer or over your sink or uh, on top of your lawnmower, it would be this one, for you, Lord, for you, Lord, everything you do for the Lord becomes an act of worship. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So it's not just worship when we gather here and we sing songs, that's part of it, but worship is what you do this afternoon and tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon and everything you do, do for the Lord, for the glory of God. And work becomes worship. You're working at the store selling clothes for, the, for you, Lord, and it's worship. You're teaching students for you, Lord, it becomes worship. You're flying an airplane or flight attendant, it's for you, Lord. You're doing uh, design problems at, uh, at your work, for you, Lord, everything you do for God becomes an act of worship. Now, there's a classic story that you've heard, uh, some of you have heard a lot of times because you've been around here a lot of times. But it's the classic tale of the medieval sidewalk superintendent. They're building a cathedral there, and he comes along and he asks three different workers what they're doing. And he, he asks the first worker what he's doing, and the worker says, I'm laying bricks. And he's got his head down, I'm laying bricks. Goes along to the next worker, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm building this wall here. And he's got his head up a little bit, I'm building a wall. He walks along, comes to the third worker, he says, what are you doing? He says, I am building a great cathedral for the glory of God. And that makes all the difference. Are you laying bricks in your work day by day? Are you a bricklayer? Are you building a wall? Are you a wall builder? Or do you understand that now you're creating a great cathedral for the glory of God? That's work. And that is 180 degrees from work for the person who doesn't know Christ. Church, I just want to ask you today, just be praying with the, with the Lord. Just, Lord, what are you saying to me about work today? What are you saying to me? Is he saying anything to you about honesty? Anything about witness? And who ought to be on our top five list? Anything at all about generosity? Or about excellence? Anything about keeping before you who your boss is? Anything about love or anything about worship. Um, don't waste your work, church. May we work this way. Stand with me, please. Friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, let me reiterate what I said before, that um, there is a work beneath the work. That is this human striving to try to earn favor with God and become accepted by Him. Friend, you could never do that. You're a flawed sinner and God is a perfect and holy God. You're way too late on that one. But there is a God in heaven. The Bible says that He's crazy in love with you. So much that He sent His own Son, God the Son, to live a life that's perfect and to die on a cross for one reason, to do that work of bringing you back to God. We don't serve Jesus so we can be accepted by God. We serve Jesus because we have been accepted by God. 
If you've never received a Savior, you don't work. You just receive a gift. Do it right now. Just breathe a prayer right where you are. Jesus, I need a Savior. Come and save me. He'll hear that prayer. And he'll release you from the religious treadmill of work. Every Sunday morning, we celebrate that. We celebrate that the work beneath the work, the human work that all the universe is striving after, Jesus did. Lord, your body was broken, your blood was shed, and we worship you. We worship you. Let me pray, and then we're going to come forward to the sides, to the back, and we're going to worship the Lord who died for us. Lord, bless every single person in this room to know you, to love you, to rest in your work, to see you as the perfect parent, the perfect father. Lord God, help us to do our work in a way that pleases you. Let it be worship and not a paycheck. Lord, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.